0: welcome to episode number 195 of turkey book talk thank you for listening i'm william armstrong here in istanbul do you remember to follow along on twitter instagram or facebook In this conversation, we conduct a post-mortem on Turkey's recent elections with Derin Koçer, a political communications strategist based in London, who writes very informatively on Turkish politics in various Turkish language outlets and at his English language substack. The election, of course, resulted in another victory for Erdogan in the presidential vote and a majority for his ruling alliance in the parliamentary vote. The reason I invited Derrin on to the podcast is that he was warning even before the election about possible complacency and strategic errors in the opposition campaign, even before the first round vote, when so many others were convinced that Erdogan was on his way out. He's also long been a very harsh critic of the main opposition party's internal culture, its lethargy and its rewarding of failure. And those warnings appear to be quite prescient considering the aftermath of the election and long-time CHP leader Kemal Kilic apparent failure to even consider resigning. We talk about that in the episode, as well as the undeniable unfairness of the campaign, how Turkey's economic meltdown and high inflation counterintuitively may have even helped Erdogan, and the thesis that nationalism, even ultranationalism, is the real winner to emerge from the ballot boxes. This episode is probably quite depressing listening for opposition people, but hopefully it is illuminating. Before we get started, let me appeal once again, this podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together and I do need listener support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since we launched the podcast back in 2015, we have published almost 200 episodes, giving a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts it's incredibly rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks. And I sincerely hope that it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please do consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or eBooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. Now let's get on to our conversation with Derin Kocher. As I said before, he was a bit more skeptical of the opposition's election chances than many observers before the election. So I started by asking him, was he surprised by the results?
1: I mean, first of all, it's never surprising that Erdogan wins at this point. I think that all the expectation, especially in Turkey, less so internationally, that this was going to be an easy win was a false start. So I was never expecting an easy result, an easy win for the opposition, and definitely with Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu as the CHP leader as the candidate. Made life a bit more difficult than it should have been. But yeah, Erdogan winning is definitely not a surprising outcome of the election. First we probably should look at why it's not surprising. And the first the first reason obviously is that he has been winning. So there's a there's a track record. But the the second thing is as he won over the the past two years, partisanship became a defining aspect of political discussion uh, and political identity in the country. We can see this on, on many reports, but one thing that was very striking, and it came right before the election, was from the Ankara Institute. And they did polling on a number of issues, including the recent earthquake in February, and they tried to understand how people react to events. So rather than looking at party affiliation, they look at how party affiliation shapes people's opinions on events that happen in the country. So they first tested the the earthquake and how people saw the government's response. And it was clear that the the, the defining aspect or the defining future of people's political opinions are their party affiliations. So if they are supporting Erdogan's coalition, it's 90% likely that they also supported how the government reacted to the earthquake. And if they're supporting the opposition, let's say it's not 90%, but 80%, 70%. The defining feature is that you know, their political affiliation is shaping how they react to the event. So this partisan divide in Turkish politics makes a realignment quite unlikely for the opposition. So what we have basically is one side, let's say roughly 40%, who is supporting Erdogan and his coalition and they're not going anywhere. And there is another side, probably a bit less, but 40%, who will be against Erdogan no matter what happens. And then the rest, the rest of 20%, some we can say are very radical, people who don't believe in democracy, people who are not voting at all, people uh, who are not integrated into the countries or not uh, a part of the political system, etc. So when we leave these people aside, we're left with 10-15% of the electorate who can be convinced by either side. And what we saw is basically a failure from the uh, opposition side, from Kulisdorov's camp, to influence these people's opinions. And from Erdogan's side, they were able to regain their trust. I think the surprising bit for many people um, was that the undecideds, in almost every poll, leaned more towards the opposition. And what we probably saw is that some of that potential vote did not go to the polls at all, especially in the second round. And Erdogan convinced the ones that were closer to, to his side. And we saw this, especially in between the two elections, the, uh, the two rounds of the presidential elections, so Kılıçdaroğlu's and the opposition's um, challenge from the beginning is to unite a very disunited opposition. And Kılıçdaroğlu's main political project was to become the anti Erdoğan vote, which, in my opinion, has been a very fragile and very not so uniting way to bring people together in the beginning. But that was, you know, that was a political project, and that's why Kılıçdaroğlu thought that he could win against all odds. But the anti-Erdogan vote in the, in the first round of the election, we saw that the secular, nationalistic, anti-establishment, anti-Erdogan vote did not go for the opposition, did not go for Khalid Staroglu, even though the Kurds went. In the second round, Khalid Staroglu seems to have convinced some of that vote, some of the vote that he missed in the first round, but he lost the support in most of the Kurdish cities, so the turnout went lower than usual. So basically, the, the gain from the secular nationalists became losses uh, from the Kurdish, Kurdish cities. So I think a good way to phrase this is, Erdogan supporters believe in the Erdogan project, but the opposition camp tried to influence their camp to be anti-Erdogan, but they did not have a uniting cause like Erdogan's camp. So, you know, in the end... All these factors played into uh, Erdogan's hand, uh, and we can talk a bit more about how policies he implemented also had an influence on the vote. But from the beginning, I think we should make make it clear that you know everyone knew that this was not going to be a fair election. Everyone knew that Erdogan was going to use everything in his power to make sure that he he gets the victory. He 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 passes that fifty percent threshold. So you know, complaining about the unfairness of the election after the election seems a bit naive and seems a bit unrealistic uh, for the opposition side as well. We all knew this. They all knew this. They had to act accordingly, but they didn't.
0: And that gets to this. You know, there are two ways of looking at the situation, two ways of looking at the result, basically. One is that 52% of the vote in the second round is actually a failure for Erdogan, given his control over everything. The other perspective is that fifty two percent for Erdogan is a massive failure for the opposition, considering the fact that we've had this massive economic meltdown, et etc. So two opposite perspectives, both of them have probably got some truth in them, but which side do you come down on I mean the opposition started with a potential of reaching sixty percent
1: when you look at polling from a, from a year ago, they were at sixty percent when when they formed the table of six, which became the National Alliance, the potential opposition vote was standing at around 60%. So uh, this shows that, and and also the undecided vote that I just talked about shows that the opposition actually had the upper hand. Erdogan may have the state infrastructure uh, and, you know, makes the rules. He is the referee in the same game that he is competing and all that. But that doesn't take it away that things are going quite badly for the country. And people people know things were, were going badly. So they were not you know, brainwashed into believing everything was fine. Which shows that the opposition could have won the election. And other potential candidates were obviously for, for months were ahead of Erdogan and Kalishtarola was just ahead, let's say, compared to the others. So it was a winnable election that the opposition lost. I think that's the... That's the main argument that should be made clear. Even though Erdogan won the election, it was mostly the opposition that actually lost and wasted an opportunity. So when we compare the result to former uh, to past elections, we basically see that Kılıçdaroğlu was able to form, well, was able to mobilize the traditional anti-Erdogan vote of the past decade. So he did not, he did not make any gains. I mean, people were very surprised that Kılıçdaroğlu gained a lot of votes uh, in the Kurdish areas, for instance. But the one thing that people in Turkey seem not to understand is that the, after 2018, after the presidential system was enacted, this became a two-horse race, right? I mean, obviously, in a potentially anti-Erdogan city, uh, a Kurdish city, the opposition likely has, has the upper hand. So there was nothing there was nothing to be surprised by in this. And it comes down to the structure of a presidential system. People seem to forget that this is how our politics now operates. It's a zero sum game. And Kılıçdaroğlu lost that game.
0: I think that's the that's the main thing. You mentioned it before, the fact that it seems like Turkey is politically frozen Or locked. You know, some people have looked at the results and interpreted them in this way. You know, they've said that basically, regardless of what happens, vote rates don't change. You know, Erdogan won pretty much the same vote share as he won back in 2018, despite this economic meltdown, despite the earthquakes, despite terror attacks, lots of other things. None of these really change anyone's mind. And voters interpret all these developments according to their own worldviews, and basically nothing changes. And Another bit of conventional wisdom that's settled in about the election is that it represented this triumph of nationalism and hardline group identity politics over economic concerns. People obviously used to say, you know, the American phrase, it's the economy, stupid. When the economy collapses, the government collapses. The Turkish version of that is uh, Suleiman Demirel's statement that Bosch uh, tenjere iktidar guturur. So that would be like an empty pan gets rid of the government. But now people are obviously looking at this election and questioning that and saying that's obviously not right anymore. Turkey is different now. You know, the pan is empty for many people. Inflation went crazy and people suffered a lot economically, but it didn't really change the way that they vote. Ultimately, the argument is that identity concerns, cultural sentiment, nationalist sensitivities appear to have dictated the majority's electoral behavior. What do you make of that argument? Do you think that's convincing, or do you think there's more at play here?
1: I think first thing to make make sure is that politics is never static. Things actually do change. Uh, we saw that change in Istanbul, in Ankara, uh, in 2019. So if if people s- just stuck to their sociological data points uh, of who they should vote for. Then you know political change would only come in decades when, when society changes. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But coming back to the to the case of the economy, before addressing nationalism, I think with the with the economy argument, analysts, foreign observers, Turkish observers, I think everyone was a bit too fixated on macroeconomic data. So yeah, inflation is up the roof. Turkish lira has lost almost all of its value, and things are going badly on on the macroeconomic level. And by the way, the, the new cabinet and bringing Mehmet Simsek back in also showed. Knows that Erdogan knows the macroeconomic factors are not going his way, but I think the the whole point of the unorthodox policies that Erdogan enacted, so like thinking high interest rates will cause high inflation, so lowering the interest rates should lower the inflation. I don't think it's necessarily a, an ideological fixation of Erdogan or his people. But I think first they made a policy mistake under Berat Albayrak, the son-in-law who was the economy minister. Uh, and they thought that by simply turning labor into a very cheap thing in Turkey, that they could make Turkey the kind of new China of Europe, which did not turn out well. But because of the policy failures at the time, around two years ago, Erdogan, Erdogan had to make a decision. Either he was going to swallow a very, very distasteful, politically distasteful pill, which would cause maybe a a recession in Turkey's economy, which would have implications for employment and would have consequences in in people's daily lives quite harshly. And he chose not to swallow that pill. That pill may be ahead now, but he, he chose not to swallow it. And when we look at when we not look at the macroeconomic data, but let's say uh, look at the employment statistics, I mean, a record people, a record number of people are employed in Turkey right now. Around 48% of the population is employed, and this is this is not counting the off the box economy, which is also quite big in Turkey. So this uh, economic crisis did not turn into a loss of jobs but it turned into a loss of real wages. So people don't have the same strength from the mon- money that they're creating. This has implications in bigger cities. I think this reflected on the election results as well, because in a bigger city, if you're getting paid the national minimum wage in Turkey, in Istanbul, let's say, you can't pay your rent, let alone anything else in you know most conditions. So the loss of the money's value created big implications uh, in big big cities. But in smaller places, the spending spree of the past six, seven months has great implications. So the, the record minimum wage is worth nothing in a big city, but it's worth quite a lot of money in smaller places. When we look at the economic advancement data regionally in Turkey, we see that these big cities are quite advanced in their economies, which means that they have very complex economies. But when we look at Erdogan's strongholds, we actually see that these places are actually economically in advanced, which also means that it creates more dependency on the state or on the job that you have, which is mostly created by either the state or crony investments and crony companies. So in in these regions, Erdogan created a sort of tank the state economics, I call this, so uh, people are dependent on the state. So even if things go wrong, even if things are going badly, they have the state to tank for and they have the state to fix their economic problems. This is very interesting because a political scientist called Brian Rosenfeld has a, a great book out. It, it's called The Autocratic Middle Class. And it's mostly on Russia and how the Russian state created a middle class that is not necessarily making the country a, a more democratic place, which has a similar systemic reflection in, in former Soviet states as well. And I think what we see is that in these economically in-advanced Turkey cities, which still make roughly the same population of big cities as well, have an autocratic lower middle class in Turkey. And these people are uh, dependent on the state, depending on the spending sprees that Erdogan enacted, and that's why they stood by Erdogan as well. So it's still the economics stupid, in my opinion, but it's not the economics of a trader looking at a country's macroeconomic data, but the domestic factors that actually make a country's economy work we not necessarily against Erdogan's favor. Things were going badly for everyone, but Erdogan still commanded an economic control in these places. So, I think the the whole debate about nationalism becoming the the main driver of politics in Turkey becomes a bit more a bit more of a nuanced argument in my opinion. I think Yes, nationalism played a great role, but it doesn't mean that we, like the Turkish citizens and the electorate, just forgot about everything else and voted with a nationalistic mindset. What we should make clear is that the psychology of conservatism, the psychology of right-wing politics, implicates some sort of questioning uh, political actors and thinking that they're not simply coming together or uniting for a a good cause but they see interests wherever wherever it is and that's why people are more people on on the right wing of the spectrum are more skeptical towards people's towards how people vote towards uh, their identities etc. So in Turkey, what we saw is that the Kurdish HDP, or Green Left Party in this election, the unconditional support that they gave to Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu actually became a a, a weakness for Kılıçdaroğlu, both in the first round and in the second round. It It became a weakness in the first round because people who are not necessarily partisan, but who have a cynical mind simply thought You know, what's in it for the Kurds? Why would they give an unconditional support? And Erdogan's campaign played very well into this. I mean, people now seem to talk a lot about the the deepfake videos uh, and Erdogan using quite unethical propaganda tactics in, in trying to highlight this. But the deepfakes did not create the distrust. The distrust was exploited by the deepfakes. So I think the election results simply showed that it's in a presidential system where you have to win 50% of the vote. It cannot only be the Kurds that are the defining players in an election. And they were not. I mean, the candidate that they backed lost. That doesn't mean that Turkey became an ultra-nationalist state, but it revealed what the systemic change enacted in 2018 means. It means... A big realignment is necessary. And if the opposition is to win, they have to find ways to bring the nationalistic vote and the Kurdish vote together. And they failed. They failed on that.
0: And some people listening might be thinking, well, the the answer to this is obvious. You know, it was just not a fair election. You know, you've got opposition leaders, civil society figures in jail. Everybody knows about the media landscape being tilted massively against the opposition over Erdogan's decades in power, the judicial system being used as a weapon. So given these circumstances, they think it's weird to even start criticizing the opposition because really there was no chance of them winning anyway. And the fact that they got almost 50% of the vote is actually a great achievement for them. What do you say to those arguments?
1: I think the first, something we, we have to make clear is that because Erdogan seems to be a very powerful leader, people seem to think that he can never he can never lose it's surprising because in 2019 we saw that he he can actually lose and in 2019 during the local elections the political atmosphere was not much different from today we can actually make the case that in 2019 all the the media landscape the jailing of opposition figures the oppression on civil society was even more comprehensive than it was this year, because after 2019, the opposition had more economic resources to create their own media, their own platforms and all that, which makes last months' defeat even a, a bigger problem than people seem to seem to think. Because the, the opposition was able to win in, in worse conditions in 2019, but it failed. To win in 2023, and another thing is that I think it's just simply the simply how competition works. If you lose, you leave. I mean that that is the that is how it works. There, it, it is a zero sum system. Uh, it is a presidential system. Erdogan gets elected, and now he picks whoever he wants to to rule the country, right? So if you lose, you get nothing. And Kılıçdaroğlu lost; he gets nothing. And he, this is not his first defeat uh, he has been leading the main opposition party for the past decade although he was he ran personally against Erdogan in the, in the presidential system for the first time his party never became government in the 10 years and Erdogan never substantially lost in the past 10 years so the unfairness of the conditions gets worse if you don't have competition in the opposition ranks without competition You give people who lost and who are not doing enough to change themselves to be able to win the free hand to not do those things. And this has been a constant in in CHP for the past years, especially. And the structural way that parties are designed in Turkey are made for this as well. The leader picks who picks the leader and the (laughs) the people uh, that the leader picks pick obviously the leader back so that systematic and structural way that politics work both in outrun's party and in the opposition's case is creating a politics that is not creative a politics that is not updated policy wise and a politics that actually does not have enough incentive to win so I think we saw that the opposition can win in 2019. But we also we also must see that if they fail to do so, they should change for others to take the helm to get the victory.
0: And that at this stage looks very unlikely because you know we're speaking a week after the election, and Dorolu is appearing to basically barricade himself within the, the CHP just today. There were reports of him reappointing the central executive board of the party and filling it with loyalists, bringing them much closer to to him. And obviously, as you say, legally, he has that right, because that's how the political parties law works. Parties basically become fiefdoms of the leader. And, you know, that is what we've seen with Kilitsha Olu since 2010. And it looks like it's continuing despite this election defeat. I mean, how depressing is it to to keep having these same debates after every general election? And looking forward, do you see any path or hope for the opposition to reform, or is there no hope and something completely new should should emerge?
1: Yeah, I. I think the, the personal depression for people who are supporting the opposition is quite large and quite systematic. And I think Kulishtarolo is failing to understand what these, what this means or what, what it can mean politically, because they seem to think that their vote would not decrease no matter what they do. And I think the, the failure to change and the persistence in the people that are responsible of, of losing reflects uh, this mindset the real risk in my opinion in this is that we saw especially in the first round of the election that there is a growing anti-establishment sentiment among the opposition vote especially among youngsters who do not have deep connections uh with with any parties uh, and we saw this in the the rise of Sinanawan as a as a political actor uh, who was largely unknown, the nationalistic French candidate who got 55% of the vote and supports Erdogan now. We saw it in the success or, you know, relative success of the far-right victory party who backed Kılıçdaroğlu in the second round. We also saw it in Moara Minges, the other uh, French candidates, sudden rise when the election season started. So we see, we can easily see that the anti-establishment sentiment is is, is growing. And Kalistarolo is a part of the problem. He looks like the part of the establishment that these voters are simply not liking, or hating, or whatever we frame it. And the interesting factor is that even though almost all the voters knew that Sinanuan or the Victory Party did not have a chance to win the election, they had strong enough motivations to not for vote for Kılıçdaroğlu or Erdoğan in the beginning so if you're if you're voting you are more likely to support a candidate who will be able to win and the the anti-establishment sentiment motivation was so strong that this did not work for at least 5% of the population in my opinion larger than that the potential is larger than that and what Kılıçdaroğlu is risking by by not changing, by not quitting, is giving more power and more popularity towards this anti-establishment rhetoric and, and and political movements. And this is very risky politically because even though Erdogan has been winning constantly for the past two weeks, his victories never turned into hegemonies. Unlike Putin, for instance, he never had the chance or the ability to recreate his own opposition so he does not dictate what the opposition says he does not dictate how the opposition operates but with this with the rise of this anti-establishment political movements he now gets to atomize the political opposition he gets to damage the mainstream opposition institutions And thus basically creates a political landscape which is very disunited on the opposition camp and very united on his camp. Even though this would not mean creating or designing the opposition, it means that at least gaining a partly hegemonic role in how the opposition operates. And this is very tricky because if the opposition is to have a chance at winning... It cannot do it without the institutions of the mainstream opposition. On the other hand, when we look at how things can change, I am rather pessimistic about this because people who might have a chance at being popular on a national level, for instance, uh, Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Mamolu are not the establishment politicians uh, that are defining how politics work in these parties. And Ekrem Imamoglu, for instance, is not the most popular politician among the CHP delegates. And as as we said, systematically, it's very difficult to actually make parties change. So the the leaders have to facilitate that change. And Kılıçdaroğlu is not willing to do that. So the only other option could be a non-party affiliated fully independent political movement taking hold and basically both using the anti-establishment the, the rise of the anti-establishment vote and also showing that there is still a path to victory but it comes not from within the system but it comes from establishing an alternative but i don't see any actor who is willing to do that or who is courageous enough to try to implement something like that because Doing this would mean risking everything politically in your hand and this seems not to be the case for any of the actors that we talked about.
0: Turning now to the government side, recently Erdogan announced his new cabinet and made quite sweeping changes to that cabinet replacing many of the names in there. Obviously major figure is Mehmet Simsek coming in as the new finance minister. Suleiman Soylu has been turfed out as interior minister obviously Hakam Fidan coming in former intelligence agency head coming in as foreign minister but particularly the, the Shimshek appointment signals about the central bank head as well and Soylu's removal some people have interpreted those as signalling a return to economic orthodoxy on the one hand and even potentially a relative moderation in terms of domestic policy so we're seeing this talk once again of a reset or a race set if you will <laughs> what do you make of that I mean do you agree with those optimistic scenarios that Erdogan's now going to chill out now that he's comfortable in power or do you think that everything that we know about the course that things have taken over the last two decades suggests that we should be a bit more cautious on that front
1: I think the case for optimism is not in how democracy is going to prevail in the coming five years the rhetoric may soften but that does not mean that everyone is going to walk away from autocracy and basically being able to win in these conditions still is sort of like a, a recognition that he can he can win as a as an authoritarian leader and i can't see any incentives to walk back from it but the appointments in the cabinet is definitely interesting I think one thing that is going to be defining in the coming five years is probably going to be discussions on what the post-Erdogan political landscape is going to look like for Erdogan's party, AKP, and for Erdoganism uh, in general. And I think Erdogan's health is going to be one of the main topics of discussion as well. And, and these two things obviously support each other or feed feed each other. With Mehmet Simsek, what we what we probably are going to see is that Erdogan, I mean, it, it does signal that he is going back to orthodoxy in, in economics, but we cannot forget that in almost 10 months time, Turkey is going to the polls again for local elections, and he wants to win Istanbul and Ankara back, even in his first speech after being reelected. He gave the speech in Istanbul and and said that the work for Istanbul begins now. So he is quite clear on this. He doesn't want Ekrem Imamoglu as a potential as a potential rival. He made this clear by by the decision on his political future by the judiciary, the the political ban. And I think Mehmet Chimchek is going to have a very 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 tough time because he has to get many things right in a very short amount of time. Ten months uh, for the election. Which probably means that he needs to get things better in at least six months time and give Erdogan the, the political and economic benefit of going to the polls for local elections. So if he fails in delivering, this would mean that the, you know, the Shimshek era would be a, a commercial break from the unorthodoxy. But if he, if he delivers, uh, I don't think Erdogan's decisions are based on ideological fixation. So it might continue like this as well. And lastly, Hakan Fidan is definitely a, a very interesting appointment. He has been the intelligence chief, I think, for almost 13 years now. And he has been quite influential in, in foreign policy matters. He has been in most of the critical bilateral meetings. So it's not a it's not sort of a a new task for him, but it's a new thing for Hakan Fidan to be a figure in front of the public. Even today he, he gave his first speech as foreign minister and people were saying, you know, first time we he heard his, his voice. I think this appointment shows that Hakan Fidan is going to become not just an important statesman figure, he was already that as the spymaster, but I think he is going to become an important political figure as well. He wanted to, to, to jump ship to the political side almost six, seven years ago, I think it was 2015, wanted to become an MP, but he had to withdraw his candidacy and was basically reinstated as spy chief. So I think this is his path to becoming a major political actor. And obviously, foreign ministry is the one of the key ways
0: to achieve this. So, you know,
1: Game of Thrones never ends.
0: And then in five years time, after five more years of centralization of power, more monopolization of institutions and pessimistically five more years of a democratic crackdown. You know, looking at that prospect now and considering the elections in 2028, if that's when they take place. I mean, do you think that those elections have any chance of being remotely competitive? And if not, then does that mean that Turkish democracy is basically dead?
1: Uh, Not necessarily. uh, Life never ends, right? The struggle, uh, the struggle never ends. I think that was one of the main problems uh, with the opposition's campaign as well. They acted as if this was the last election for Turkey's future. I mean, if that was the case, you know, Kılıçdaroğlu wouldn't be in his post. So they obviously exaggerated the importance of this election. This election was a, was a critical election because it was winnable for the opposition. But that doesn't mean that everything, everything ends now. People have been debating the end of democracy for Turkey for almost a decade now. And depending on who you talk to, you can, debi- you can say that it has been two decades since this debate started. But no. Turkish people actually have a long history of trying to make democracy work, longer than many democracies that we think that we take for granted today. And I think Turkey went to the polls 16 or 17 times and changed governments nine or 10 times. People never supported the army when they tried to intervene in the political process. And the actors that anti-democratic forces tried to sideline always came back as critical actors in Turkey's history, which all this simply shows in in a historical perspective, democracy did not end with coups, democracy did not end with wannabe autocrats, and it will not end with this election either. But things are going to get tougher because of the reasons that I talked about without Changing itself, the opposition will fail to make the case that they can actually change Turkey. And now, one of the defining features of the last election was that the crisis that the the government created in around 2021 came too close to the election. And the, the pill was politically very, very, very distasteful to swallow. But now Erdogan has five more years. He seems to have a more competent, more technocratic governance in in place already. And if he can show that he can deliver results, this will make the case for opposition even more difficult. And it will most certainly make the presidential system, the undemocratic presidential system, much more normal than it was uh, for this election. So I, I doubt that we will be talking about going back to a parliamentary system in 2028.
0: That was Derin Koçer. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 195. Do remember we need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talks Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast, write. a positive review wherever you listen follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com our twitter facebook or instagram accounts or all of them recommend turkey book talk to a friend or a foe and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to Armstrong at gmail.com and finally let me once again remind you to check out a friend of turkey book talk turkey recap Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.